0: Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This week, we're going to discuss three papers we recently reviewed in our weekly conference. The first article was presented by Rich White, one of our senior residents, and the paper was entitled, Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation Treated with Esmolol in Resuscitation 2016. Refractory ventricular fibrillation is defined as resistant to three or more shocks, three milligrams of epi or more, and 300 milligrams of amiodarone or more with high-quality CPR, and it's very difficult to manage. You've already exhausted your traditional moves, so what's next? There's been a lot of talk about dual-sequence defibrillation, and if you've got eCPR in the hospital, you can go to ECMO. Additionally, a number of papers have discussed giving a beta blocker. A beta blocker may be helpful by countering the huge amount of circulating catecholamines, both endogenous as well as from multiple rounds of epinephrine. Esmolol is the drug that's discussed most in this context. This paper asked a simple question. Is esmolol efficacious in achieving ROSC and survival with good neurologic outcome in treatment of refractory ventricular fibrillation? It was a single-center, retrospective, pre- and post-study. The primary outcome was sustained ROSC greater than 20 minutes of spontaneous circulation without recurrence of cardiac arrest. They also looked at a number of secondary outcomes, including survival to ICU admission, survival to hospital discharge, and survival with a favorable neurologic outcome at 30 days, 3 months, and 6 months. The intervention was Esmolol, 500 micrograms per kilo as a bolus, followed by 0 to 100 micrograms per kilo per minute as an infusion. 41 patients were included in the study with 16 getting Esmolol and 25 patients not getting Esmolol. Sustained ROSC was achieved in 56% of patients in the Esmolol group and just about 16% of patients in the no Esmolol group, giving an NNT of 2.5 for sustained ROSC. Survival to ICU was the same. Good neurologic outcomes at 30 days were seen in 18.8% of patients in the Esmolol group and 8% of patients in the non-Esmolol group, but that difference was not statistically significantly different. Now, there are a number of issues with this study. It was single center. It was a small sample size. It was retrospective, which adds bias. There was no blinding or randomization. And the primary outcome here was sustained ROSC, not good neurologic function. The small sample size makes it tough to find smaller but still important differences. For instance, the good neurologic function outcome had about an 11% difference. But because the study was so small, that difference isn't statistically significant. The authors conclude that the findings of our study suggest that administration of Esmolol may increase the rate of sustained ROSC and ICU survival among patients with refractory ventricular fibrillation and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Further, larger-scale prospective studies are necessary to determine the effect of Esmolol for refractory VF in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Our conclusions are pretty similar but a little bit different. The study suggests that Esmolol is efficacious in increasing the rate of sustained ROSC for patients with refractory VF. However, larger prospective studies need to be performed to assess whether the benefit persists and if there's a significant improvement in neurologic outcomes. We don't recommend Esmolol for routine use based on this data, but refractory VF isn't routine. It's going to be hard to get big trials, and so this is probably a reasonable consideration in select cases. Remember that when we talk about refractory ventricular fibrillation, we're talking about cases that don't revert with your basic management. If they go from an unorganized rhythm to an organized rhythm and then revert back, that's not refractory VF. Refractory VF are the ones that don't break regardless of what you try. Article number two is presented by one of our chief residents, Joe Levin. It was entitled Cervical Spine Evaluation and Clearance in the Intoxicated Patient, a Prospective Western Trauma Association Multi-Institutional Trial and Survey. This was published in Trauma and Acute Care Surgery in 2017. Alcohol and drug intoxication is common in trauma patients, and a significant proportion of cervical spine injuries occur in patients with intoxication. A standard approach to both intoxicated and sober patients with suspected C-spine injury in many trauma centers includes the placement of a rigid cervical collar and spinal immobilization until the C-spine can be cleared. Even after a negative CT, intoxicated patients are often immobilized for prolonged periods of time until a reliable exam can be performed due to a concern for missed findings on the CT scan, specifically unstable ligamentous injuries. This practice is less than ideal as prolonged C-spine immobilization is associated with DVT, atelectasis, aspiration pneumonia, and elevated intracranial pressures. In 2015, the Eastern Association of the Surgery of Trauma, the EAST organization, demonstrated that CT imaging of obtunded patients due to any cause would miss approximately 9% of cervical spine injuries, most of which were clinically insignificant. They additionally found no benefit to prolonged immobilization. So the question asked by this study is, what is the accuracy and reliability of CT for identifying clinically significant C-spine injuries in intoxicated patients? It was a nested secondary prospective multicenter observational trial within the main Western Trauma Association multicenter C-spine trial. The primary outcome here was the performance of cervical spine CT to identify the presence of a clinically significant C-spine injury in intoxicated patients. And the secondary outcome was to evaluate cervical spine clearance practices and immobilization times in intoxicated patients to survey institutional practices and opinions regarding spine clearance in the intoxicated patient. They enrolled just over 10,000 patients in the parent trial, and 30% of these, or about 3,000 patients, were classified as intoxicated. Now, there were a number of findings here. Those will be in the show notes, but the big one was the rate of clinically significant C-spine injuries. The sensitivity of CT alone was 98%, a specificity of 93%, and that gave a positive likelihood ratio of 14, and more importantly, a negative likelihood ratio of 002 Remember that any negative likelihood ratio less than 0.1 is extremely powerful. This study asked a simple, clinically relevant question, and it was a large, pragmatic study. However, there are a number of limitations, and again, you can see those in the blog post. The biggest thing is that there was no gold standard for assessment of patients. All patients didn't undergo an MRI to confirm the absence of significant injuries. The absence of injuries was really based on repeat clinical evaluation at time of discharge. Additionally, there was no long-term follow-up performed. This is always difficult in a high-risk population like patients with intoxication. Patients may have had a delayed presentation that would not have been known as there was no formal follow-up evaluation. The authors conclude that for intoxicated patients undergoing cervical spine imaging, CT scan was highly accurate and reliable for identifying clinically significant spine injuries. CT-based clearance in intoxicated patients appears safe and may avoid unnecessary prolonged immobilization. Our conclusions once again are slightly different. For intoxicated patients with a negative cervical spine CT, there appears to be little benefit to maintaining prolonged immobilization unless there's an obvious neurologic deficit or high degree of suspicion for cord injury. This is consistent with previous literature and CT performance in obtunded patients. The bottom line to us is that if the CT is negative, you can probably cease spinal immobilization, but you should make sure to do a repeat neuroexamination when the patient is clinically sober. The final paper is one that I reviewed on antibiotics and abscess management, and it's entitled Systemic Antibiotics for the Treatment of Skin and Soft-Tissue Abscesses, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. This was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2018. Skin and soft-tissue abscesses are a common emergency department presentation. The approach to management has changed little in recent decades, incision and drainage, and then discharge home with follow-up. However, increasing rates of MRSA over the last decade have led to further considerations of adjunct therapy with oral antibiotics to improve cure rates. Two recent studies by Tallon and Dalm have showed a modest but consistent benefit to oral antibiotics. So the clinical question for this article is, do MRSA active antibiotics improve clinical cure rates amongst patients with abscesses who receive an IND? The primary outcome was treatment failure within 21 days. They located four studies with about 2,400 patients that they included in the systematic review and meta-analysis. Three studies were performed in the ED only, and one was in the ED and outpatient setting. anti mrsa antibiotics used include TMP-SMX in three studies, and then either TMP-SMX or CLINDA in one of the studies. The critical findings here were for treatment failure. Anti-MERSA antibiotics had a treatment failure rate of just 7.7% versus placebo at 16%. This gives an absolute difference of about 7.5% and an NNT of 135 half. The study also looked at the occurrence of new lesions at different sites as a secondary outcome, and anti-MERSA antibiotics once again had the advantage here. 6% versus 15% in placebo, an absolute difference of about 9% and an NNT of 11 Adverse events were common, but equal in the two arms, 24.8% versus 22.2% in the placebo group. This is the largest meta-analysis looking at this topic, and it included all of the recent big articles that have been published. The results are weighted towards two larger studies, though. Additionally, as we mentioned before, all of the studies didn't use the same antibiotic. One study incorporated clindamycin into their algorithm, while most of the others focused on TMP-SMX. The primary endpoint of clinical cure was defined differently in the different studies, and in the two major studies by Talon and Dahm, there was a significant overlying cellulitis in most of the patients. The authors conclude the use of systemic antibiotics for skin and soft tissue abscesses after incision and drainage resulted in an increased rate of clinical cure. Providers should consider the use of antibiotics while balancing the risk of adverse events. Our conclusions are pretty similar. The available evidence demonstrates a modest but consistent benefit to adjunct anti-MERSA antibiotics after IND of a simple abscess in terms of clinical cure and occurrence of new lesions without a significant increase in adverse events. However, there are four issues that deserve to be stressed. Many of the patients included in the studies by Talon and Dom had significant overlying cellulitis. This clouds the issue of whether we are treating the abscess or the cellulitis with the antibiotics. Number two, expanded use of anti mrsa antibiotics will increase the rate of serious adverse events, even though that wasn't seen in these studies. Those events that we're looking at are C. diff. diarrhea, hyperkalemia, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, hypersensitivity reactions, and others. Number three, the clinical cure rate without antibiotics is high, 84%. Most patients will improve without antibiotics, and thus a delayed use or addition at follow-up may be a superior strategy. Finally, number four, and perhaps the most important point, is that widespread antibiotic use after IND will likely change the resistance patterns of Staph aureus, and we can't predict what that will cause. The bottom line is that ED providers should consider adjunctive therapy with oral antibiotics with MRSA coverage after IND of simple, small abscesses. In particular, patients with overlying cellulitis have an even stronger consideration for this adjunct therapy. Let's hit our take-home points for this podcast. Consider using esmolol bolus and infusion in patients with refractory VF as it may lead to better outcomes. A negative C-spine CT is excellent at ruling out significant spinal injury in intoxicated patients without a focal neuro exam. You can consider removing the collar once the CT is negative, but always perform a repeat neuro exam when the patient is clinically sober. And finally, consider adjunctive oral anti-staph antibiotics in patients status post-IND if they've got a significant overlying cellulitis. Clinical cure rate is high without antibiotics, so you can also try a wait-and-see approach. That's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM, and come on over to iTunes and give us a rating if you feel like you got the time to do so. Thanks, and see you next week.